I'm Leila Saad, and my life is driven by one burning question. How can I become a good ancestor? How can I create a legacy of healing and liberation for those who are here in this lifetime and those who will come after I'm gone? In my pursuit to answer this question, I'm interviewing changemakers and culture shifters who are also exploring that question for themselves in the way that they live and lead their life. It's my intention that these conversations will help you find your own answers to that question too. Welcome to Good Ancestor Podcast. Hello and welcome back to the third episode of Good Ancestor Podcast. Today I'm here with Ebony Janice Moore, someone I'm very excited to speak to someone who I've had the pleasure of being interviewed by. And so I know this is going to be a really fire and really um, moving conversation. Ebony Janice is a hip hop womanist, a scholar and an activist doing community organizing work, most specifically around black women's body ownership as a justice issue. We're gonna be speaking about that in today's conversation. She is the founder of Black Girl Mixtape, which is a multi-platform lecture series created to center and celebrate the intellectual authority of Black women. She founded BGM Institute, Black Girl Mixtape Institute, an online school offering classes that center people of color, doing the work of decolonizing education and offering coaching and consulting that is decolonizing authority. Welcome to the podcast, Ebony Janice. Thank you for having me. I want you to introduce me in everything. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome. <laughs> I'm really, um, I'm really looking, as I said before we hit record, I'm really looking forward to having this conversation with you. You're really unique in the conversation that you're cultivating. Um, and so I am looking forward to what's going to come through today because I know that when I've listened to your um, sermons, it really moves me. And it always, um, it's always something I need to hear to remind me of my own power. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So let's, let's dive in with the very first question. Ebony Janice, who are some of the ancestors living or transitioned familial or societal who have influenced you on your journey? Okay. That would be number one, my grandmother, Maya Angelou, Erica Badu, Beyonce. So I go in that order because my grandmother is the most influential just in general in my living. In my my grandmother transitioned December of 2015. And uh, a really interesting story is I, I actually was just on a journey of truly acknowledging my ancestors, both living and those that are my contemporaries at the time. And so I was doing a meditation, a recapitulation meditation, and my grandmother visited me. She was still living at the time. My grandmother visited me in this meditation and just gave a profound word to me. And then 10 days later, she transitioned to the eternal. And But at the time, the people that I was calling to in this meditation was my grandmother, Maya Angelou, Erica Badu, and Beyonce. And so it's just so profound to me that I was just even in that place where I could receive that from my grandmother, which is, I believe, the reason why she visited me in the spirit, because who else in my super Christian family was she going to come and, you know, give this kind of message to that was for me, but also has been very profound for her six daughters and for other other people in my family. And um, 
so yeah, my grandmother and then Maya Angelou for, I feel like obvious reasons, but ever since I was a little girl, I had this voice that I hated when I was a little girl. I thought I sounded like Peter Brady going through puberty. And there was this woman that used to tell me all the time, no, you have to love your voice, both like the literal manifestation, like your physical, you know, that, that voice, but also like the voice that is coming from inside of you. And she always used to call me Maya Angelou. The funny thing is though, now she calls me, she, I think she's just getting older. So she can't remember what she's saying. Yeah. So she calls me, she calls me Maya D'Angelo, which I'll <laughs> accept that too. <laughs> that, that makes sense to me too. So Maya Angelou for a lot of reasons. And then Erica Badu, because She's like the original carefree black girl for mm. us, for, for so many of us. And um, I feel like there's really no no representation of what it looked like to um, be very different, very unique, but still having these very um, across the diaspora, like black girl experiences that so many of us can um, just feel, you know, a- aligned with. And then Beyonce, for obvious reasons. I ain't even about to say why Beyonce, because I, just I, I feel mean, like that's a full, that's a full sentence. <laughs> I mean, it, you know, <laughs> that is a exactly. full sentence, right? Yeah, and Beyonce, period. In the sentence. Period. Is, right? Yeah. <laughs> I love I love these ancestors, and as we're recording, both of us are wearing um, a uh, what do you call it? A t- not a t-shirt. A yeah, it's a long sleeve t-shirt. A yeah. long sleeve, uh-huh. sorry, yeah, a long sleeve yeah. t-shirt that you designed, which I saw, and yeah. I was like, I need to have it. Um, mm-hmm. And it says, "What would Erica Badu?" Yes. And I yes. like whenever I wear it, I feel so fly. <laughs> yes. This is my, my nephews always ask me, what would Erica Badu? Mm-hmm. And so I'm, I'm constantly, um, I feel like answering that question for, for other people and for myself, like, what do I think Erica would Badu? And, and even, even when Erica Badu would do something that I wouldn't necessarily do, mm-hmm. I still feel like there is a lesson in that, you know, there's a lesson in that living, right? I'll give one example. Erica Badu has said some things that I just don't agree with, you know, mm. that, um, like her, her relationship with R. Kelly, um, which is, is, you know, very problematic. I don't agree with it. I don't think that every single thing that she does is the right thing or, you know, says the right thing. But here's the thing that I find so interesting about the way that we are so much more willing to throw her, her under the bus than we are to hold R. Kelly accountable for his actions. Okay. That's, Number yes. one. And then number two, Erica Badu and her unfortunate relationship with R. Kelly is very similar to many of our relationships with our problematic family members mm. and, you know, that, that are Black men. And so it's like, I think it's this important question or conversation that we need to have in our families about how we have cousins and brothers and uncles and fathers that we still love, despite the fact that they are trash (laughs) and so how do we hold them accountable without completely throwing them away and or how do we have the hard conversations of holding them accountable and also getting to the point where we decide like we can't continue to be in relationship with them and so yeah Erica Badu for a lot of reasons is is one of those um 
one of those what would Erica Badu questions that isn't always like the the answer to that question isn't always I would do that too but very often it is I would do that too and and what I you know when I saw the t-shirt and was like I have to have it you know what that question means to me isn't I I would make a decision that Erica Badu would make but rather Uh the way of thinking Mm-hmm. It's Erica Badu's outlook on life, which is so mm-hmm. different to the norm. Mm-hmm. And as someone who, for me, as someone who is choosing to be a self-defining, intentionally self-defining woman, mm-hmm. and someone who's choosing to uh, trailblaze my own path, you know, she she's a trailblazer. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I, that is so huge because that's a part of it. Some, I was going through a season a couple years ago, actually, when I designed this shirt before it even existed, I was thinking about this idea, like what would Erica about do? And I was going through this thing with my body and just feeling really like insecure and Erica about do release window seat. And, um, you know, in the video for window seat, she's, walking down the street getting undressed Mm. and by by the end of the video she's completely naked and so there's I actually got emotional watching the video because there's this revelation for me that I'd never seen a body like my body this very shapely you know body I've never seen a body like my body on television for the purpose of anything but for sex Mm. this very this very sexualized shape that she had you know big butt hips slim waist and um and I never saw a body like that on tv for anything other than but for sex and the fact that she was owning her body and doing with her body even at the end being naked you know doing with her body what she wanted to do with her body and the message was for something other than but for sex I I, I had these, like, all these conversations that I was having with myself, particularly around, you know, just owning my own body. And I remember thinking, like, like having this day of, like, you know, just picking my body apart and thinking, girl, what would Erica about do in this moment? And mm. and that was, like, you know, kind of the beginning of that phrase for me. But it was also like this, yeah, she, I just can't imagine Erica Badu standing in a mirror, like, and my thighs, and my butt, and my, and my stomach rolls, and my, you know mm. what I'm saying? Like, mm-hmm. it just... And so it was like this very liberating um, conversation for myself, just asking the question, what would Erica about do? And so, so many more of those, you know, those moments is exactly what you're saying. It's this intentionally self-defining woman really is exactly what that feels like for me. So it's not, it's not, it absolutely isn't always like I would do exactly what Erica Badu would do, but it definitely is like, I would think, hmm, what is, what is the truth for me in this moment? Right. And, um, and that that has been very empowering for me over the years. Yeah, I mean, yes, every yes to everything you just said. And you know, Erica Badu is someone who I see as someone who is a living ancestor and will become a a good ancestor once she's transitioned. And and that mm-hmm. and she's she has her ministry, and you have your ministry. You mm-hmm. are a hip hop womanist, and that's the f- when I when we met. That's the first time I'd ever heard that term. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I was saying to my husband, you know, because he was asking me, who are you interviewing today? And I said, oh, Ebony Janice. And I said, she's one of the most interesting people 
um, that I know because, yeah, I was like, she does this work and it's at this really different intersection than I've ever seen before. And Mm -hmm. she's bridging things that, you know, I said, she's she's talking about Christian theology, hip hop, Mm -hmm. womanism, you know, black, black, um, uh, black women's bodies, um, social justice, Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it all coming to decolonizing authority, all of it coming together and making and being things that s- seemingly look unconnected, but they are mm-hmm. connected. Yeah. And I love watching the connections that you make. Um, mm-hmm. I look at you and I'm like, she's that is her bot. This she's building this body of work that will become her ancestry. That is your ancestry already, but that will wow. certainly become your ancestry when you're gone. Um, yeah. How? What brought you to this work? And what is the legacy that you are actively creating with this work? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you for how you set that up. Um, I I have always been doing this work. I didn't have the language for it, but I always was. Always, always, always. Um, even into my childhood, I hip hop has always been. I've been I've been teaching and preaching since I was you know five six years old. And um, my grandmother, who you know I mentioned earlier, is one of the most influential people on my life. Um, my grandmother sat me down when I was a little girl and taught me how to make a lesson plan to, 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 because at my church, you, they had like, um, student teachers for each, uh, level of Sunday school. Mm. And so for, for the baby class, you know, I was, which that's exactly, you know, it's the, the baby intermediate, you know, and so on and so forth. So for the baby class, I was the student teacher, um, when I was in the baby class and my grandmother just, you know, wasn't going to let me show up to teach without, having a lesson plan, you know, like, what are you going to teach? You can't just look at this booklet and read out loud. You have to have a plan. What is your, what is your goal? Um, what do you, what is your learning objectives, right? Like talking to a, you know, a six-year-old about learning objectives. And, um, I re- I remember this, you know, at, at that age being excited about this special time with my grandmother and also annoyed at the same time <laughs> because, I want to be playing. I don't want to be, right. you know, making a lesson plan on Saturday night, you know, before Sunday school in the morning. And, um, but that is one of the absolutely, absolutely one of the defining moments of my life because I am a teacher and I don't know if I, I mean, I mean, I'm sure that the most high would have brought me to teaching one way or another, but my grandmother was such an influential part of me coming into my teaching, um, at such a young age. And so when, when I think about that, when I think about what she must have known and saw in me to know that this was a part of my journey, a necessary part of my journey, yes. I'm so great. I'm so grateful for that. I'm so grateful for her being um, uh, unapologetic about um, conversations that she, you know, likely had with my parents about getting me to, you know, to church and getting me to um, Sunday school and getting me to, uh, you know, teachers meetings and, and things like that. And, um, and, and I say that because there are some things that my parents didn't make me do, right? Like my grandma wanted me to be an usher. My, my parents knew that I didn't want to be an usher. So they didn't force me to be an usher. 
My grandmother wanted me to sing in the choir. My parents knew that I didn't, you know, love singing and all these extra choirs that we had. And so my parents didn't make me do that. But that was one of the things that my grandmother was unapologetic about. She was not about to argue with my parents about whether or not I was going to teach. Mm. And so I'm, I'm, I'm so grateful for that because absolutely, absolutely. I asked the, um, the elders in the eternal to help me remember this you know, I want to go to earth to do this work in this body, in this form at this time. And my, and so they sent my grandmother in this time, in this form, in this body, you know, with her story to make sure that I got to this work. You understand what I'm saying? Yes. There was no way that the elders in the eternal, the most high was going to let me forget. So they placed my grandmother in this body, in this form, in this time, you know, with this story to make sure that I was constantly coming back to myself or, or remembering myself, literally putting my members back together. So I, I know I asked for this. I know I did um, because there's nothing that satisfies me more than this work, more than teaching, more than preaching, more than um, finding ways to communicate ultimately what it is to be a black woman um, in, in, in this godness and this, you know, in this holiness and, you know, the glory of it. And so I, I say all that to say, I was always doing hip hop womanist work. This woman is, uh, where womanism is ultimately, you know, this is defined. Alice Walker has this very expansive definition of it. And so it comes from Alice Walker's definition of it in her, um, in her work in search of our mother's gardens. And, but the, it, before that she had used the term womanist to ultimately say at the very least, we should be able to define ourselves. And so she, she is saying like, you know, you can't name these, you can't name us. You can't decide what we're going to call ourselves. Um, you know, at the very least, we should be able to define that for ourselves. And so in, in this definition, the last part of it, she says, womanist is to feminist as purple is to lavender. So there's mm. this relationship, but the emphasis is on Black women. And mm. and so understanding that there is this um, this work that we're doing, these conversations that we're having, but what would it look like for us to center Black women? And so years later, um, there are these uh, Black women um, studying liberation theology, and they they took on that that um, that title of womanist because at the very least, even though we're doing this Black liberation work, even though we're having these um, conversations within theology, even though we're having these conversations that is centering Blackness, there is this very unique place that Black women um, show up in the world. Period, because we live in a uh, a patriarchal white supremacist society. So if you break that down, this patriarchal, that means that there is some space at the very least for black women or for black men to, you know, have some form of, I'm doing quote fingers, some form of authority. Um, And then in this white supremacist society, that means that there is some space for white women to show up and have Mm -hmm. some, you know, form of authority. So what is it for the black woman then? You know, where does she... Where does she, she has this very unique position. And then from this theological perspective, we're asking the question then, like, because theology from a Christian perspective, the Bible, and I say from a Christian perspective, but I would say from a religious, all religions in general, but from this Christian perspective, we're learning the Bible from this um, male-centered, this white male-centered, but this Mm -hmm. male-centered perspective. And if you, if you're teaching me the Bible, which is this thing that becomes the way, the truth and the light, you know, for, you know, for the way that we're living our lives as black Christians, um, 
in the world, but you know, especially as a black uh, Christian person in America, then where do I show up as a black woman? So I want to figure out how to have all conversations centering black women because, um, because everybody else's voice is going to be heard in one way or another, and then there will be black women. So there's right. all this other wisdom and knowledge and information and experiences. And so my simultaneously, uh, you know, and, and defining all this simultaneously, um, I grew up with hip hop, you know, same, the same way that I'm going to constantly be quoting scriptures is not possible for me to not be quoting, you know, hip hop. I'm going to quote Biggie. I'm going to quote Andre 3000. Jay-Z is going to come up 27 times in a simple conversation. It's just, it's just what it is because that's the language of my, of my, uh, of my culture, of my generation. And so how do these two things, how are they exclusive? It's impossible for them to not go together with all the wisdom um, that I found in hip hop, you know, in my youth and um, it, wisdom, both in like the literal and wisdom in the like, okay, that doesn't make sense. You know, we shouldn't be doing that. And so how do we uh, interrogate the, this, this hip hop language in the same ways that we're inter that, or hopefully how do we interrogate the Bible or our sacred text, what we consider sacred text in the same ways that we interrogate um, hip hop and its authors. And so, yeah, I feel like I've, in, in one way or another, in my teaching and my preaching, I've always been doing this work. It just, I finally, um, probably within the last eight, eight or so years, have gotten the language for what it is that I'm doing. And so I, I feel like there are other people that have been doing hip hop womanist work, but I don't know a lot of people who have been in relationship with, with it, you know, calling it that and or been in relationship with it in the way that I have, you know, decided to really articulate um, in the ways that I am. The, the ways that you articulate it are really unique and your passion for it is really clear. And as you were talking, I remembered, um, because we, you and I met when I ran the live Me and White Supremacy Challenge. Yes. Um, in the summer of 2018. And I don't know where you came from. You were like an angel <laughs> that just <laughs> that just found me. And we're like the energy of a big sister who yes. both in public and behind the scenes, you were checking in with me constantly. Mm -hmm. You were affirming me. You were letting me know that, you know, you and a bunch of other women who I didn't even know have my back. Mm -hmm. And um, mm -hmm. it was, so, it was, so it, you will never know what that meant to me. That was mm. for me. Um, but I remember around that time, you had, we had a conversation about something and you, you quoted to me, I believe like you quoted Beyonce and like a, a, a Bible passage, both within mm. the same conversation. Um, mm -hmm. And there was no, it was, there was, it was seamless. Mm -hmm. It was completely seamless. And mm -hmm. it, like, you know, I'm not, um, I'm not Christian, but I, mm -hmm. I'm very spiritual. Um, I'm Muslim. Mm -hmm. and, you know, there's a lot of crossover between the two religions, but mm -hmm. the way that you embodied the message of both for me, the, the, the kind of lyrics of Beyonce with mm -hmm. this, you know, ancient um, wisdom was right. like, it kind of blew my mind and mm -hmm. it really, um, centered me with that ancient wisdom but also okay like i'm a, a woman in mm -hmm. the 21st century yes yes right? <laughs> I, I was having a conversation recently actually on, on a different podcast um this this young woman out of um 
Michigan. Um, her her show is called Good Girl Radio, and we I don't even know how we got on this subject, but basically basically Beyonce in the Bible, and um, I I was saying at some point I was saying I I believe that Jesus was my way to God, and. And so I use Christ as um, this example, you know, this living example for me, like what would it look like for me to show up um, in this earth today? Well, you know, Christ is a great example of that. And, but, but here's the thing, <laughs> context matters because Jesus was not a black woman in 2018. Right. So, so there are some things that we can't be like, what would Jesus do? Which brings us back to a conversation about what would Erica Badu or right. what would Beyonce do or right. what would Solange do because or what would Maya Angelou do or mm-hmm. you know or what would Coretta Scott King do right and so is we like like Jesus can't Jesus is a great example and and we could do really good just following the example of Christ but. <laughs> there's some contextual things that will differ. Right. And, and so we have to be able to find something that is, um, that we, that is also sacred and that is also wisdom and, and that is also holy. And so that's what womanism, you know, womanist theology, but womanist praxis in general is saying that um, if we look around us, black women have always been finding other things, other text. I'm saying text, but it doesn't have to be um, written, you know, but always finding something sacred um, outside of the Bible or outside of the Quran. You know, Black women have always been finding other things that lead us and guide us and 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 is wisdom is for us. So the color purple, you know, will yeah. always be sacred for us. And um, and lemonade, you know, right there, it's it's it was holy. It spoke for us. It was a testimony service yeah. for us. So how can we how can we say no? That doesn't qualify as something that can be sacred when clearly black women across the diaspora watch lemonade and there was a hallelujah shout or and we know, cried what? like we are Abs- absolutely our whole entire paradigm is shifted mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know and yes and it's you exactly what you said our paradigm was shifted because what happened was we got new language for how it is to articulate what this experience is this experience of loving, um, of loving each other, of loving people, of loving black men, of loving black women, which is all a part of this womanist, um, Alice Walker's definition of womanism, um, you know, loves sometimes women, sometimes black men, sometimes sexually, sometimes non-sexually. And so when you have something like Lemonade be able to articulate that experience in such a deep way, both in, in its lyrics and its visuals, then it's impossible for us to be like, no, because there are times when Lemonade can speak to my um, spiritual religious experience deeper than Paul can mm-hmm, in the Bible, mm-hmm, period. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. period. And, and we weren't cheated on by anyone. And we, right? Yes, <laughs> we yes. And, and still, right? Yes. We, we're not having the experience that Beyonce had when she created this album. And yet, Absolutely. the depth at which it touches us. Absolutely. And so too, so, so that's when it becomes a justice issue to exclude Beyonce's lemonade from a whole, you know, from consideration as a holy canon Mm. or as holy text, because why, why is Paul credible? Why is John credible? Why is Abraham credible? Uh, Yeah. Abraham is a perfect example because for both of our religious truth systems, Abraham is the father of those, Mm -hmm. you know, 
um, religions. But Abraham also was trash in many times of his life. You know, he gave his wife away basically to, you know, prostitution. You know, like he, he, he didn't trust God at times when, you know, God was speaking clearly to him. You know what I'm saying? And so, so we can find, we, we don't interrogate Abraham the way that we interrogate um, Beyonce. You know, we don't say, we just say, oh, well, we, we iconize him as this holy character, you know, because of our, because, because of our sacred text, but we don't allow him to be a man and we don't, you know, so that's not taking away from what Abraham has, um, what his faith did, you know, he became the father of, of many nations. Of course, that's what we believe, you know, if those are our truth systems, but why, why can't we do the same thing with Beyonce? Not to, not to iconize her, not to make her holy, but to say like, Beyonce is out here living this, um, this very uh, black girl experience and has found a way to articulate um, in her music and in her art and in her work and in a lot of ways in her living. And absolutely, but, in, her, in yeah. her leadership and the yes. way that she chooses to live her life. Yes. Mm -hmm. So why isn't that um, a, a guide? Not, we're, we're, we're just not going to do everything that Abraham did. I'm not taking my baby. <laughs> Right. Um, uh, up on the mountain to sacrifice him. You know, I'm not, that's not going to happen. So we can't, we can't be like, well, the literal existence of Abraham, because we're not living the literal existence of Abraham. We're just not. So what does it look like when we are living many of the literal, you know, experiences of Beyonce or many of the literal experiences of, you know, who, whoever it is for us. And, and so I'm, we're focusing on Beyonce, but really that's not the focus of womanism. Like womanism is asking us to, to find what that text is, to find what that, um, what that song is, you know, Song of Solomon by Toni Morrison, or, um, or for you, so much of Audre Lorde's work or Octavia Butler is, is, is sacred text. Absolutely it, sacred. And I get yes. chills. I get chills thinking about it. And earlier you said something about black women have always searched for um, guidance outside mm. of kind of religious texts to help us, you know, with our, I'm paraphrasing, but understanding mm -hmm. our experiences. And mm -hmm. for me, those ones that you've just, you know, I was reflecting on this time last year, I was burnt out, exhausted from whiteness. Mm -hmm. um, and I did not know I had for the first time been faced with the question. It was after seeing Toni Morrison actually in an interview when she was talking mm. about uh, defying the white gaze. And I was like, what is the mm. white gaze? Found out what the white mm. gaze was. And I asked myself the question, who am I outside of the white gaze? Mm. And I didn't, I didn't know. I, didn't, I did not know who I was without that gaze. Ooh. And it Ooh. sent me into such a spin that I had to close up my website, delete mm. all my social media apps, go on a sabbatical, basically. Yes. And I spent an, a month between November, December, about the space of a month in the library almost every day, reading every black feminist text that I could get my hands on. Yes. I read Audre Lorde. I read Bell Hooks. I read um, Sonia Ooh. Sanchez. I read Ntozaki Shange. I read Lucille Clifton. I read Zora Neale Hurston. I read everything that I could find because I was searching for a roadmap. Yes. Because I felt, I, it was like, I've been lost at sea all of this time and I had no idea. Mm. 
Yeah. And, and, you know, you talk about decolonizing authority, which is what I really want to talk about in this conversation. Um, mm. I, in that, through that experience, realized that there have been ancestors who have mm-hmm. come before me who have wrestled with these same questions. Yeah. They have wrestled with these questions and they have attempted to answer them in the best way that they could. And in doing so, they created art and they created writings and they created Mm -hmm. ministries and they created poems and they are roadmaps. They are um, uh, signs for me to find my own internal authority. Mm Mm-hmm. And there is something just so unique to me about the black woman's journey of finding her own internal authority because nobody is giving it to us. What a beautiful, beautiful thing. That's the thing that, um, that is so amazing to me, which has been my journey, you know, even if I didn't have the language for it, like what you just said, I didn't, I may not have had that language, but my life has always been about remembering myself Mm. because what I believed, even as a young girl with the gift, um, to, of knowing and seeing things, um, like literally the supernatural, um, what some people might call prophecy. Um, but, but just, I, I just always knew stuff. Um, even even to the point, my gra- my grandmother's mother, my they called her Medea. She transitioned before my, you know before I was even alive. But I knew stuff about her that used to make my grandmother weep because she would just be like, "How do you know that? Like, like who who are you that you know that?" And so because I my background is uh, Christianity, I I didn't grow up with the 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 language of reincarnation, mm. but I but I studied. French. So I knew this word called deja vu, which the translation of deja vu is just already you. And so as a young girl who didn't have the language, wasn't allowed the language of reincarnation, but absolutely had this word deja vu, which which I understood to mean already you, I knew that I always was me. Always. So before I was in this form, if I believe that the spirit is eternal, and I believe that I'm not this body, I'm just in this body, you know, I'm a spirit just having this, you know, physical experience right now, that means I always was. And so I have, I have been doing the work, this is part of my, my work um, in ministry, is finding ways to tell Black Christian people especially that we are actually God, but doing it in a way that doesn't make them feel uncomfortable because of this thing that I call the Christian demonic filter. And the Christian demonic filter is this thing that was given to us actually by white people where we aren't able to like, uh, as a, as a part of like, you know, being introduced to Christianity as a result of slavery here in America. Mm. And, um, and, and I say it that way because this isn't the first time that black people have been in relationship with Christianity, but because I am my ancestors, my immediate ancestors were slaves, you know, as a, as a, you know, a black person in America, then that means that my introduction and my ancestors, my immediate ancestors introduction to Christianity was as a result of slavery. And so along with that introduction to Christianity, they got this Christian demonic filter, which was the intentional mechanism that demonized everything about them black. So their language, 
any other religious affiliations, um, just, you know, just anything that isn't expressly spelled out in the Bible and or expressly defined for us as a part of our traditions in Western Christianity, uh-uh, that's demonic. And, and so, you know, literally that's, that's the way that we, we grew up calling everything demonic. Ooh, ooh, that's demonic, girl, you can't. And so, but here's the gag. As, as Black Christian identifying people, and I actually teach this in my class, um, uh, introduction, introducing the African spirit religions and Black spirit themes in Beyonce's Lemonade that I'll be teaching at BGM Institute starting December 1st, which is a, a conversation for later. But in this class, I teach about how Southern Black Christianity is actually um, in, a, in a closer relationship with Ifa, Santeria, Candomblé, and Voodoo than it is to Catholicism. Mm-hmm. So there's that. So we we doing all this, like, you know, this this Christian demonic culture that tries to keep us from um, from anything Black, you know, or anything, you know, in relationship with Blackness um, historically. But the reality is we have been unable to separate ourselves from that. But that, but back to deja vu. So there's already you. If the spirit is eternal, then that means that I always was. And it, so I, so if I always was, then what happened when I came to Earth is everybody else's story for me just piled on top of the truth of who I am. So I'm not, I'm not having a revelation. I'm just having a remembrance. Ultimately, that's it. I'm just remembering myself. And so all of this to get back to the question that you had said for yourself is you were, you were wondering, who am I outside of the white gaze? And for me, it, it's not just, it's, it's the, the white gaze, of course, because that's this dominant gaze. But more than anything is, who am I outside of everybody else's story for me? Yes, yes, <laughs> yeah. yes, yes. Because because the white gaze has even constructed my mother's truth for me. Yep. My grandmother's truth for me, my sisters, my family, my church, my people. And so who am I outside of everybody else's gaze? Well, Ebony Janice, you were already you. And so there are these moments where I I remember myself as who I actually am. And so how do I, how do I, um, how do I get over, you know, the story about who I'm supposed to be? And that's where I came up with this language for real for myself about decolonizing authority is nobody's in charge of me. Nobody, nobody is in charge of me. The most high, in fact, um, has given me so much freedom to identify myself, define myself, um, that even even God isn't trying to control me. <laughs> and so this idea of control, like I, going back histor- you know, historically, African indigenous people, African people didn't have like the stories about authority in the ways that we in contemporary society have about authority. And so that's where I'm asking the question, do you realize that, that something existed before people came and created the standard, the current standard? Something mm-hmm. existed, period. Before you showed up on the scene, something existed before you got here. And so this idea then that authority or who's in charge is colonized 
is so important because the majority of our fear, the majority of the reason why we can't create the art that we want to create, the majority of the reason why we can't come into the fullness of who we actually are is because we are underneath the, the layers, the thick, heavy layers of somebody's colonized authority. You're not even in charge. I used to, and I, I say this out, you can, I'll stop talking because I'll talk forever. But I, I, I was uh, talking recently about how hair braiding, <laughs> how um, in the United States, and this may be, you know, worldwide, but in the United States, there are, um, there are certain states that you will get fined for hair braiding because you have to get licensed to braid hair. And so that means that there is some standard that you have to go learn under. And then once you live up to that standard, then you get authorized to braid hair. Wow. Who gonna authorize me to do something I created? Are you <laughs> kidding me? That's, that's number one. Number two, it, there are in, in many of these spaces where you cannot braid hair unless you have been certified or authorized. There isn't even a, there isn't even a class because it's basically saying you can't do hair period unless you've been certified. Who is teaching me? Mm -hmm. Who, so, so in many places there, there isn't a class, there isn't actually a module, you know, in your learning institution for hair braiding. And then the person in charge is going to teach me how to braid are you kidding me? And it <laughs> when and this it is how I, we do our hair. Yeah. Right? <laughs> I've been braiding hair before I mastered the English language. Right. Are you kidding me? Right. Are you even are you seriously kidding me? And so you will get fined for doing something that you and your ancestors made up. And and so the and then the other part of that is let's say there is a module for hair braiding. And then I learn from, you know, Sally Sue at such and such school, how to, how to braid hair. <laughs> this is, you know, this is the standard. I gotta, I have to actually bend down. I have to lessen myself to meet that standard because she cannot braid hair better than me. She right. cannot teach me. I have to unlearn. And she's what, telling me this right. is the right way to braid hair. I have to unlearn what is naturally godlike for me in this in this um skill i have to unlearn it to do it the way that the standard teaches me so now let's think about all these other institutions that tell us this is the standard and realize for yourself how many spaces of learning or you know that are that have become standardized how many spaces of learning um or being or existing you actually have to lessen your natural capacity in order to meet the standard are you kidding me <laughs> Okay, right. Um, yeah. Wow. <laughs> so I got to say to that. Yeah. Um, and I, as I was listening to you talk, I was thinking about my own journey, especially, mm -hmm. as I said, over this past year, ever since I asked myself that question, ever since diving deep and really, as you said, trying to answer the question, who am I outside of everyone's gaze, really? Mm -hmm. um, because mm -hmm. I grew up, it, you know, similarly to you, I guess, in a patriarchal religion and mm -hmm. also within the white gaze. And so there are a lot of, um, um, my personal conditioning has been a, a lot around being the good girl, mm -hmm. being the, 
being the model minority mm. um, and uh, always waiting for someone who I deem ha- ha- for some reason has more authority than me. And I can never, if you ask me, I can never quite pinpoint why I think they have more authority than me. Yes. Um, but for some reason I have deemed. And so there was, a, I spent a lot of my life waiting for permission. Mm-hmm. Please come uh, give me permission to yes. do this. I spent mm-hmm. a lot of my life waiting for permission. Mm-hmm. And it's one of the biggest lessons I've learned. And I said to you um, before we hit record that turning 35 has been like walking through a portal for me. Yeah. Where that's just not coming with me anymore. Yeah. All of that, yes. none of that is coming through with me into 35. Um, yes. And I, I know that sounds like, oh, okay, she's just decided she's just not going to deal with that anymore. But I've had to go through the entire. Uh, mm-hmm. journey of unconditioning myself, remembering, as you said, remembering myself, yes. healing myself, deciding mm-hmm. for myself, defining myself. And when I think about Black women and, um, well, th- let me not speak about Black women like we're a monolith. When I think about myself as a Black woman and my relationship with authority, and also sometimes when I witness Black women who I know and their relationships with authority, um, there is this waiting for someone else to say it's okay that we can do this. There is this, um, until we really step through and do that work and really remember and reclaim ourselves, there is this, is it okay? Is it, is it going to be okay? And then our own internalized oppression as well comes up when we Mm -hmm. see a black woman who doesn't follow those rules. Yep. Mm -hmm. Right. It triggers it triggers us. It's like, how, how can she do that? And I don't know how to do that. Yeah. Right. We don't, we don't know how we don't. I actually was saying this to um, someone recently that part of the reason why we get that, that something that kind of it's envy. We haven't articulated that that's what it is. We don't Mm -hmm. know that that's what we're feeling, but it's envy. Mm. And when that comes up for us, it's because we don't have an actual example for what it looks like to be liberated in contemporary society. So even just going back to Jesus, the reason why I say that Jesus has been my example and my way to God. However, there have to be there has to be something else. There has to be um, something contextually because for Black women, we uh, and again, you know, you're absolutely right not to speak about Black women as a monolith, but there are some shared experiences that we're having in this, you know, very patriarchal societies that we come from. So, so for so for so many Black women, there is not an actual messiah there is not a you know an example of what what it looks like to actually be liberated so when you see these few you know uh, kind of you know black women out here just like not not buying into the standard not buying into the role that they're supposed to play not buying into the tropes any of the tropes that have been um set you know set aside for us to exist in and and you and you think to yourself like wait a minute what is this i've never no one ever taught me this one. No one ever showed me that one. No one ever, you know, told me that that was, you know, a possibility. And so, so yeah, it is this, um, this envy that kind of shows up because we don't, because there's something in that that's beautiful, but 
we go we go automatically to uh uh-uh, that's not right she can't do that that's not mm. we, we haven't been given access to that to that kind of joy to that kind of pleasure to that kind of freedom and so and so how dare she be free how dare she be you know whatever that is and and so we need to have more conversations like this we need to have more conversations where we t- where we are able to even introduce ourselves to the fact that we're not a monolith introduce ourselves to the fact that you know there are there are other um black girl experiences to be had introduce ourselves to that so that we can say wait a minute what if my individual black girl experience hasn't even been realized yet and i could be the one to set somebody else free into like going yes. you know, in, in that direction you know walking in that direction like like the the bible says that the earth is groaning out with labor pains waiting for the revealing of the sons of god and I, that's one of my favorite scriptures, period, because what I realize is that the earth is in literal pain, waiting for me to show up, in pain, waiting for me to show up. Now, we don't realize that the earth is in pain, waiting for us to show up. Layla, I was in pain waiting for you. Do you understand that? I, 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 knees. I, was, I was in pain waiting for you to go through that portal and decide that you weren't playing these games anymore. <laughs> and... <laughs> and and think think about that. Think about the people that when you saw it and something something was activated inside of you. Yes. And there was like a little you got a little bit closer to your freedom. And that's what it is. The earth is in literal pain, what like just waiting to be activated. Like, oh, that's a thing that you can do and stay and be and have. Oh, I want to walk in that direction. That's actually how I feel about Beyonce. Yes. I didn't, I didn't go deeper about Beyonce earlier. I would talk about Beyonce. We could make this, I mean, this whole episode yeah. could actually be about Beyonce. Yeah. I mean, I'm just trying not, I'm just trying not to like sound like yes. such a stan, but I mean, I am. yes, yeah, we are stan. So <laughs> that's how I feel about Beyonce. I yeah. was telling um, uh, somebody that, that does some work for me recently. It's a, a, a young girl. She's like my little sister, but she's a super Beyonce fan. You, we don't even know anything about being, being Beyonce fans compared to this this young woman. Period. Uh-huh. And um, but I was talking to her, and I was, and she was like super side eyeing me because I've not seen Beachella yet. I haven't what? watched it. It's listen. It's in my the whole thing is in my Google Drive, and we we share this Google Drive. The whole thing is in there, but I can't watch it because the little clips that I've seen of it have made me sob. Uh, oh my I, god! I, I, yes, I cried through a lot of it. A lot I of it. Yes. Can not watch it because what happened for me with that performance? Um, I grew up singing "Lift Every Voice and Sing." Mm. I grew up. Um, I grew up. You know, I told you I've I've kind of always been this this you know very blackity black, but also like you know. Uh, I've always been doing this hip-hop womanist, you know, even before I had this language for it. And so the super, super duper blackity black girl inside of me has always been waiting to see that, you know, Mm -hmm. in in mainstream culture. And in a lot of ways, what happens when I see Beyonce is I see myself for the first time. Yes. I, I, and it's, and it feels very emotional for me. Like, wow, I never, I lived, you know, for all these years without this language or without a, a, an image of it or feeling, you know, very different and unique or, you know, the inner me, you know, even, even the stuff that I was saying was weird or different or unique. And then even the stuff that I wasn't able to say out loud was, you know, 
even more weird or different or unique. And so to, to see this woman just decide, like, this is really what I'm doing. This is, yes. like, I'm about to be out here with these, you know, ancient comedic, you know, visuals with this, you know, garb, with this language, to, you know, representing historically Black universe. Like, it, it, it feels like too much for me. I feel like I can't even take it. And and so it, that's it. Yeah, I, I didn't, I mean, even now, I did not have words for it. Yeah. It was just yeah. <laughs> sobs because yeah. it was, it is very overwhelming. Um, what I see in, in Beyonce, I mean, her talent as a singer and dance, uh, performer and everything aside. Yeah. If it was just that, that would be enough, right? Yeah. But that aside, she has made a clear decision for herself that the way yes. that she is going to show up in mm -hmm. her artistry, in her ancestry, the legacy that she is creating, that she will be unbossed, unbought, unbothered. She will create it the way that it is brought down to her and not the way that others dictate or project at her. And, and to that, the only thing I can say is, wow. Yes. Like that is amazing. It's, it's, I'm not calling Beyonce God, but it is God-like. The decision to show up and be who you are and to be willing to evolve and to be willing to be transparent and to be willing to, um, to, to, to perfect your craft and to, you know, to, to just be getting better and better and better is, is amazing to me. And my, my work, what, what my goal is, is to be Ebony Janice. You, you, have either asked this question or going to ask this question about what my, what the legacy. You know, it was of, on the tip of my tongue. I want to, yes, I want to know. Yes. What is, what is that legacy? That, that is, it's, I, I want to, I can, I can start immediately, like with my immediate, my nephews. Um, I, I want them to have this moment in their life where they realize that Ebony Janice is their aunt. And it, wow. and it, it's like, and they feel proud of that. I think they do already, but for really silly reasons. Like, <laughs> like I, I was rapping one day, you know, I have my, with my pre-chaps and I, I did one for Buster Rhymes and I did his verse from the Chris Brown's Look At Me Now song. And it's, if you know anything about Buster Rhymes, Buster Rhymes raps really, really fast. Real fast. And so, yeah, so I can I can do the whole thing without like stumbling. And I just saw my nephew's eyes like get really big, like the the two younger ones, the the eleven year old and the nine year old, like, oh my God, ATF just and so or or when I freestyle for them, they always like they think they're cooler than me. They don't know that I'm <laughs> in to somebody, you know, like they don't know that I'm cool. So right. they like they hear me freestyle sometimes and they're like ATF got bars. And so, <laughs> and so, and so, but, but like just on a, so that makes me feel really happy, but on a deeper level, you know, one day I want them to wake up and realize, wow, my aunt like changed stuff. 
Like if there was, there was a before Ebony Janice and then there's an after Ebony Janice mm. and, and, and I want that. So that's, so that's the immediate, like, you know, I, I want them to be proud of me. And, um, and, and so that's, that's number one, but with what I'm doing with the, with the language, you know, of hip hop womanism, with what I'm doing with my prechebs, you know, these, these hip hop Bible studies where I'm, where I'm ultimately saying, if this scripture is considered sacred text, I can literally pinpoint this lyric and show you where it's saying the exact same thing. So the, the ethics of considering one sacred and the other not, and they're saying the same thing, you got to deal with that, not me. Mm-hmm. And, and that also is some colonized, you know, stuff like what makes, um, what makes Edgar Allan Poe this consummate, you know, legendary poet that we will learn about in schools forever and, and not Nayira Wahid, you know, Mm -hmm. like who said, who said one is more credible than the other and, and what, and, and so that credibility. And what are those standards of credibility and where do they come from? Yeah, that's it. Mm -hmm. So, so, so what, what I want, this is, this is, you know, part of my legacy. I want a part of my legacy to be that I contributed to tearing that down. That's, you know, like, like citate the power, the politics of citation is so powerful. Mm. I, I, I want people, um, you know, particularly in academia, but just in general, like I want people to remember the time before Ebony Janice, when you couldn't, cite two chains you wouldn't think to be citing a two chains you know <laughs> lyric or interview or quote in in a scholarly text and then then there's this time after ebony janice where black thought was was as worthy if not the reality e- e- even more credible than right because bad I'll part <laughs> I use this example really quick. We're, I was, ta- I was, I did this presentation recently, and somebody on my panel was comparing um, Meek Mill's theory <laughs> to Maslow's um, rules of hierarchy. Okay. And um, and but before the before the conversation could be over, we got to deal with the fact that Maslow got that from somewhere. He did mm-hmm. not, you know. That's not. Like that's who we credit it to, but but there there are all of these um, black, you know these these African scholars, these these philosophers that had already created this hierarchy, and then you come in and you whitewash it and you get the credit for it. That's mm-hmm. not a conspiracy theory. That's you know like read books. Books they still exist, you know, for a reason. And so, so we can find the hierarchy in all of these, you know, these these black philosophers, these African philosophers. We can find the way that they had already been talking about, like what is important to assist, you know, to make a society be able to sustain itself. That people have to have these very basic things first, and then like that existed for thousands of years before this man, and then he comes along and he gets credit for it. And so we can. <laughs> So yeah, we're talking ahead. about a standard. Yeah, we're yeah. talking about a standard that you know 
but the standard isn't even actually properly cited, you know, like, like let's, if we're going to have to live up to this standard, let's properly cite the standard then if that's the case. Right. If so that's the case. And it's, it's mm-hmm. reminding me of something that my mentor, um, Dr. Frantonia Pollins always says to me, which is if it had value when we, when they appropriated it, then it had mm-hmm. value when we created it. Mm-hmm. Right? Always did. Right? Absolutely. If you Absolutely. see it as value, valuable when Maslow put yes. together and, you know, put that theory out there, then it had value when the original people put it together. That's the, that's the, that's what decolonizing authority is about. Mm-hmm. It's about realizing that some people, largely, you know, European people, came showed up in a lot of different places and said oh look at this thing that you're doing (laughs) Mm -hmm. isn't that interesting (laughs) oh that's that's amazing now either kill all of you get rid of all of you enslave all of you and then now we're in charge of this and you either can't do this can't speak of it can't acknowledge it and or you got to do it like this wait a minute hold on a second hold on a second I, i i have used um, I have used a hair braiding as an example. We could talk about decolonizing mindfulness, you know, because like, like in, in the United States of America, yep. you likely got to get licensed by, to do, to teach yoga by some white people. Guys, do you know that this existed for, for thousands, like it's an ancient practice that existed before you showed up on the scene. So the fact that you got to go get permission in these United States of America to teach yoga from yeah. some white people, that doesn't, that has to, like people got to get that in. I'm not saying and, white people can't teach yoga. I'm yeah. just saying, deal with that. Deal with the fact that this is a colonized practice. And and I think the thing is, is like when we say this is an ancient practice and it go, we could similar, we could say similarly for, um, Native American practices that have been appropriated yes. and that are commodified and sold um, through the white gaze and to a white audience. Um, we say it; these are ancient practices, but the people from that ancient culture still exist today. It's not ancient and then now they've yes. gone. And so we have to teach it because they're no longer here. They're here. Yes. They're a huge population of the earth. They're here. Right? <laughs> so, that part right there. So they don't that, need, mm-hmm. right. So that's, that's the part that I think is really important just to kind of, you know, put us in perspective. Um, and I'm thinking again of myself as a black woman and how I see authority for myself. And I'm wondering if you could sort of um, bring us home with this, with this conversation and maybe preach a sermon or whatever moves through, <laughs> whatever moves through you for the women and people of color the black people and and black women who need to re- remember their own authority yeah the first thing that actually comes to my mind that really began to shift this journey uh, unintentionally um as i remember my pastor i preached this sermon years ago, a former pastor of mine preached a sermon years ago about um, Paul had got shipwrecked and, <laughs> and when, when they got shipwrecked, Paul, Paul was actually a prisoner, but he took charge. 
and um no, these houses, prisoner, you know, taking charge, whatever. But over and over again throughout the sermon, because, you know, in, in Black churches, that's a thing. Like, you just kind of repeat your catchphrase. And, that, mm-hmm. you know, that just takes people up. But over and over again throughout the sermon, he just kept saying, who authorized you for that? Who authorized you for that? And that was really the beginning of my my shift in the conversation about authority. Because I had never asked that question before. Who put y'all in charge? Even, even actually, I was in that church asking the question, wait a minute, I can't even preach unless you give me permission to preach. Who authorized you to give me, like, who, who put you in charge ultimately? Mm. And, and so literally I started kind of um, deconstructing really every area of my life where there was somebody in charge who authorized you for that was the beginning of that, that question or that conversation. And so, and so I have given these examples. I've talked about, you know, hair braiding. I'm trying to talk about these very practical things. I've talked about hair braiding. I've talked about yoga. I even, I even think about the history of, um, of medicine, how Mm -hmm. for, for, Mm -hmm. for many people practicing medicine is a spiritual practice, a part of their spiritual practice. Right. So you come into a space and you say, well, I understand you're talking about authority, but I don't want somebody operating on me or, you know, prescribing me medicine or heal, you know, doing healing work that hasn't been certified. Well, understand that even those certification standards have been colonized because there were people, number one, already healing for centuries, you know, before these standards showed up. And then number two, even many of the standards existed and the people who created those standards or, 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 or practice, you know, operated for the first time, whatever, did not get proper credit for the standards that they created. So mm-hmm. it's still colonized because who put you in charge to say, unless you do it like A, B, C, D, E, F, G. And so I wonder for, for, for all of us, anybody listening or anybody, you know, that's interested in having this conversation on a deeper level, I wonder for all of us if we might just begin to interrogate, like go back through our own lives and ask the question, like, where are the places where I've been waiting for permission? And let me let me think about the history of those areas. So let's say, you know, for me, it has been ministry, it has been teaching, it has been, you know, ministry, 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 but also preaching, and then and then teaching. So yeah, for me, the- it was it was writing, and it took me years mm-hmm. to own myself as a writer, even though I've written all my life. So, so there's, so think about those three areas. We got ministry, we got teaching, we got writing. Who, who is in charge? Who, who is, who made it up? Who made up preaching? (laughs) Who made up teaching? Who Mm -hmm. made up, who made up writing? And then, and then who made that up? Nobody did. You know, it's just a natural behavior that people begin to operate in. So, so beyond that, then who are the people who most, this is a question Zan West asked me, who benefits for me to wait? Who benefits for me to believe it this way? Who benefits? And the reality mm. is in all, in all three of those areas, white men actually benefit the most in every single thing that, that we just said. Cis, hetero, patriarchal, white supremacy, able-bodied, right, right? Like think about all these privileges. Like that's who benefits the most. It does not actually benefit me 
or my people for me to not open up my mouth. It does not benefit me or my people for me to not preach. It does not benefit me or my people for me to not teach. It does not benefit me or my people for me to not write, whatever those things are. So asking those questions, even because yours might not be preaching, teaching, or writing, whatever, like these are the examples that we're giving. But whatever it is that you're waiting for somebody to give you permission to do. I was talking to a client recently about the fact that she didn't want to apply for unemployment because the person that she was working for before the job ended used to always say all the time, I would never apply for unemployment. I would like, like that was a part of their language all the time. Mm -hmm. I was like, girl, you were being programmed. Do you realize that? That you were being programmed to not do what would be able to take care of you? What would, what would benefit you? So who does it benefit for you to abide by that idea that applying for unemployment when your job ends is a bad idea or it's not good or it means something about you. And so that's the, the question, like thinking about all these like kind of miscellaneous things, like bringing them together, the common question I feel like really empowers us into like dealing with authority as this colonized ideology is asking the question, who actually benefits from me believing it this way? Who actually benefits from me thinking of it this way? And the last thing that I'll say about that is I've been teaching, I've been teaching it, um, teaching about authority in this way about imagine that there's 10 steps there aren't 10 steps but just imagine there's 10 steps and in in this practice you're only on step three like you you haven't you're not a guru yet you haven't whatever it is if it's writing if it's preaching if it's teaching if it's teaching yoga if it's you know if it's being a healer whatever it is you're you're only on step three guess who you are a, a guru to everybody on step two one and the folk that ain't even got sense enough to start taking steps yet hmm. and so but uh, but colonized authority doesn't tell us that we have the right to teach or to share or to or to uh, invite people into you know into our, our space because there's two things number one we believe that there's only enough room on step three for one person <laughs> and then <laughs> that, that and that's not true and, right and that is a that is, you know, a very white supremacist ideology is that there's, there's not enough room. There's only, excuse me, there's only enough room here for one person or for this one particular group of people. Especially if you're a, a, a person in a marginalized identity. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. There can only be one token, one of us, and that's it. Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. And then, and then beyond that is everybody on step two is amazed by how you got to step three. You are, you are a master teacher for step three. There, there has been nobody who has gotten to step three that can articulate step three activation the way that you can. Mm. And so, so that is my, my preachment, my teaching around what does it look like even, you know, for, in a practical way for us to decolonize authority. Uh, the 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 colonized idea of authority says until you get to step 10 you have no credibility uh, you uh, are so credible to everybody on step two one and those who haven't begun yet 100 percent. and and i think a, another part of that colonized authority is that there is no room for not knowing mm -hmm. yes right? So, so one of the things that I found really freeing is when I heard, I think mm -hmm. it was an interview with ta Coates, and he was talking about when he's asked a question and it's not in his lane, it's not in his knowledge, he's not going to yes. act like he knows what the answer is. 
That's so good. Right? Yes. And, and that's so freeing. Like, I may be an expert in this, but I'm not in that, you know? And, and it's okay so for me good. to say, I don't know. That is still more of, uh, more of sharing, sharing step three, though. Because here's the thing. We both can be, even if we're in the same field, there can be some things that I don't know still. Yes. That, right? Right? And here's the best part about that, though. I'm in community with Layla and Layla does know that mm -hmm. she like, like has an emphasis on that, despite the fact that we're both in the same industry in the same field. And so I can share that space. It doesn't make me less credible. It doesn't make me less worthy. It doesn't make me less capable. It's just that, that question right there or that piece right there. Layla, Layla got that up and down and all around. She's right. Gonna, she's gonna, you know, she's gonna hold you down on that. And so it doesn't make me, it doesn't lessen my capacity for me to say, I don't know. So I appreciate you bringing that up because that's so good in this, colon, in this you know, this colonized space of authority. It's, you gotta, do you know how many doctor's appointments I've been to where doctors have just sat there and just talked out the side of their neck? They didn't know what they were talking about. <laughs> right, period, right. Period. And, and I was diagnosed with PCOS when I was 22 years old. And I, I had all these symptoms prior to getting um, a, a woman doctor. And so even we talk about like, um, we're talking about, you know, colonized authority and putting an emphasis on, you know, uh, blackness or for people of color kind of coming out of the space, but for all marginalized spaces, because when I, when I think about the fact that at 22, a woman doctor looked at me, she didn't run no tests. She didn't do anything. She looked at me and said, you have PCOS. Looked at me, just mm. looked at me. But all of my doctors before that diagnosis were white men. Can you deal with that? Can right. you deal with the fact that they both went to the same schools, had the same learning, but she had a capacity as a woman to just look at me, look at my body, look at these very basic things, these outwardly symptoms, and tell me, oh, there's something going on with your ovaries. Mm. So when we, when we uh, buy into this idea that, again, who does it benefit to be considered first? Who does it benefit for, you know, this group of people to be considered the most capable? Who does it benefit? Cis white men. They're winning. Mm -hmm. They're here in these streets winning because we believe it. We buy into it. And so, so yeah, this, this asking this question, who authorized you, number one? And then number two, for yourself, asking yourself the question, if there's 10 steps and I'm just on step seven, does that make me less credible for everybody on step six, five, four, three, two, one, and those that are just beginning? Right. And so do I have to wait for somebody to give me permission at step 10 to begin this journey? And what would it look like for me to begin this journey today without somebody's permission? And so, yeah, this going back to the, the final thing that I say on that is just going back to that scripture that I mentioned earlier that the earth is groaning out with labor pains, waiting for the revealing of the sons of God. The, the beautiful thing about the revealing is, and that's why I say there's not 10 steps because I don't think we get to like some final actualized step right. until, you know, right. like, I, like, right. like even, even the ancestors have work. You right. Like, right. Like, yeah. so they didn't so die. Perfect. Right. Yes, yes. There's still work that right. is happening. And so, and so until we transition into some higher, like elder ancestral realm or something like we're going to always be on a journey. So if you're waiting to perfect it, to begin, uh, -uh you're the, 
you are, we're waiting for the revealing. This is an ongoing process. You, you just walk through this. You said you walked through a portal at 35 mm. At 36. You're going to walk through another portal yes. at 40. You're going to walk through another portal at 45. You're going to walk through another portal. And so my prayer is that you never stop being willing to be revealed mm. and, and not waiting for some imaginary, like, this is the, you know, the, I was waiting for this in order to be able to begin. No, 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 no. Beyonce got something yet for us in store. She has, she has not. Oh, she does. <laughs> oh, yes. She, I don't even know what she's going to have to do next. Like, she's I'm not even ready. I'm not ready. Like, I just don't even, I can't even fathom what this woman's going to do next. But, but again, even, you know, using that as an example, somebody who we, you know, can, can agree, you know, for the most part, mm-hmm. if, if you got a little bit of sense, you can agree that, <laughs> that, you know, Beyonce is out here doing this very high, you know, step nine, step 10 living. Mm. And, and even she has, is still being revealed. We don't know. This is, this is what makes me a little emotional. We don't even know the best version of Beyonce yet. Here's, mm. here's the thing, Layla, as dope as you are, as much as I love you, we don't even know the best version of you yet. And if you keep waiting for permission to show up just as where you currently are, we all are just going to remain in pain. We're grieving because we just waiting for Layla to show up right here in this space. And nobody's in charge of that but you, period. Period. Nobody's in charge of that but you. Oh, wow. Ebony, Janice, that was... Thank you for, you preached a sermon. You really did preach a sermon. Yeah. Um, that moved me. And I'm, I know I'm going to be reflecting on this over the next few days and really letting it settle in me um, because your mm-hmm. words are really activating, you know, very, oh, very God. activating. Mm-hmm. So I hope that um, everyone who's listening, I know who everyone who's listening has had something shift or will experience something shift within. Um, yeah in their relationship with themselves first and foremost Mm -hmm. and then how that relationship is then manifested in how they relate to the rest of the world um Mm -hmm. so thank you very much thank you so much for this conversation thank you for having me thank you for the work that you're doing i actually feel like i remember the moments of this becoming a thing this good ancestor conversation Mm. i I, I feel like there was some sprinkles of it happening and I saw it coming. I saw like, I saw the name change coming. I saw it. I just want you to know that. And I, and so I'm so proud of you for doing the very hard work of saying, or you know, of saying like, okay, I know that y'all were celebrating it that way, but that's not true for me. I don't want right. to do that. I don't want to give away my authority to y'all to tell me how to do the work that my soul must have. So I'm about to totally shift. I'm changing my name. I'm changing, you know, I'm changing everything because this is what it is. I'm so happy that you did that because we are all better. And now here's the best part about it. We have an example of what it looks like to change courses and go in the right direction, even though the direction that you were headed looked lucrative and looked like, you know, it could be beneficial. Like we know, we have a great example of what it looks like to shift and it's, and we're better for it. So thank you so much for this work.
Thank you so much, Evan EJ. Thank you so, so much. You've been such an important part of this journey. Um, again, I don't think you realize that, but your words have really stayed with me. So thank you. Thank you. Um, our very thank last you. question as we close out, what does it mean to you to be a good ancestor? Yeah, for me, it means um, currently in this living, in this body, it means continuing to create the conversations that must have, uh, that we must have in order for us to be whole, free, actualized people. Um, I want, I want my ancestry to be about, um, to be people. Um, I wouldn't even say people to be God body people, um, God body beings who are just on a journey to remember themselves. Like that's the whole, like I, I don't want, I don't want my nieces and nephews. I don't want my great, great grandchildren to, to have to be 30 before they realize, mm -hmm. Oh, I am, you know, like I, I want, I want the story to be like after her, her, her entire bloodline was just full of, of people who were just being what God said for real. So that's number one. And then, and that, so I'm creating those conversations now. Like I feel like I'm doing that now or I'm on a mission to do that now. And then when I'm gone, like that's the memory. Like uh, I want to visit, uh, that's important to me because I think about my grandmother. Like I said, like I, I was the, maybe the one person in my family that was available for my grandmother to visit me in the spirit, you know? And, and, and so I want to be creating um, people who are available for me to to visit them, you know, as an ancestor um, or as an elder, as a contemporary, you know, to, to be able to visit them in the spirit and give guidance and wisdom and share. Like I want to be um, creating that space for us because for so many of us, like I said, as a result of our Christian demonic filter, so many of us, and I say Christian demonic filter, but I know that there's some version of that for other people as well, yes. even outside of Christianity. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, but for so many of us, we're not, we have not been available for conversations about ancestors and we have not been a in, uh, available for conversations about the spirit in this way. And so it's important for me that whatever it is that I'm talking about or doing or saying or being is making room for that in a, in a larger way for, um, for people to come. That just gave me chills. Thank you so much, Ebony Janice. Thank you. Thank you. I love you so much. I really do. I mean it. I love you too. I hope that this episode has helped you gain new insights and find deeper answers to what being a good ancestor means to you. We'd love to hear what some of your aha moments have been from this conversation. You can follow the podcast on Instagram at, at goodancestorpodcast. And drop us a comment to let us know what some of your biggest takeaways have been. Thank you for listening and thank you for being a good ancestor.